Good morning. We're in lesson 10 in our study of the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, and the message is titled, Striving for Rest. I was thinking about the title, Under Arrest, but I gave that up. I may do that later sometime. I think I need to tell you about my experience with rest this week. But I want to ask you first, how many people this week have had a situation in in your life that's come your way and you've said to yourself, I wonder if the teaching on rest doesn't apply to me here? Anybody this week thought about it? Yeah, uh, I'll tell you about mine. Uh, about midweek, I was working away happily on my computer, and it decided to die. And I had not backed it up real recently, and uh, basically I had a lot of stuff on there that I really uh, wanted to have in my hands. Now, I have to make a confession. In days gone by, I would have been dancing in the aisles because I would have said to myself, I smell upgrade, and and that means faster processors and all of that. But the reality was both time and money were not in my favor, and I just didn't want to go through the hassle. If you've ever rebuilt a machine, you know that's going to be just a day or two or three before everything's running right. I just didn't have it. So I, I, I had a little talk with myself because I, I, I recalled some things that I had said and I, and I asked myself, am I really resting? Am I really resting? Isn't this sort of like Israel being in the, in the desert and finding no water? Isn't it sort of similar? So I, uh, I prayed about it and, and I waited. Finally, uh, I went to Fry's right after I went to the bank. And, and, and in the sequence of events, I, I, uh, I had a motherboard and a processor and all that stuff that has to come with an upgrade, but I had a hunch. And, and so one of the things that was on sale at Fry's was a video card, the thing that makes your monitor work. And uh, it was $29.95 with a $29.95 rebate. And so I added that to the pile. When I got home and got to the point of starting this massive project, I said to myself, I'm replacing the cheapest part first, and I'm going to find out if it's something less than my motherboard. Yes. Put the $30 graphics card in, and my problems were over. I went back to uh, Fry's, went back to the bank, and when I get my $30 rebate, folks, it isn't going to cost me a thing. <laughs> now, I hope I was resting in all of that, but it's kind of one of those ways in which God says to you, you know what, partner, I can take care of this. And, and I suspect you will find that there are many occasions in your life and experience where you'll see God at work. I was thinking about people who, who would watch literally all of their possessions float away and what that must be like. Uh, and yet it is a time when rest really applies. Well, we're talking about the subject of rest, and particularly that subject applies in chapters 3 and 4 of the book of Hebrews. Two weeks ago, 
We talked about Israel's failure to enter into rest based on those experiences, remember, at Massah and Meribah and Exodus 17 and then Numbers chapter 14 and Numbers 20. As they're picked up by the author of uh, the psalmist in Psalm 95, and it is Psalm 95 that the writer to the Hebrews uh, cites when he uses that text in chapter 3. He quotes verses 7 through 11 in verses 7 through 11 of uh, Hebrews chapter 3 and applies that. Israel's failure to enter into rest. Last week we talked about rest defined and applied, and we saw that rest is not just a matter of entering into the land. Rest is ultimately a Sabbath rest, the rest like God experienced when he had finished his work of creation and ceased from his labors. So the writer says that the kind of rest for which we are to strive is the rest that leaves us free from works, as it were, free from our labors, and yet is not a a rest that is free from effort altogether, as we see in verse 11, and we'll pick that up again today. So when we come to our text in the last part of Hebrews chapter 4, we are coming to the author's conclusion to his arguments about rest from chapters 3 and 4. And I'd like to focus on several things Uh, as we look at this text. I'd like to focus on the theme of the Word of God. I don't know how one can read the first five chapters of Hebrews and come away saying the Word of God really isn't very important because it's really critical. This is what it's all about. My contention is that you can trace the argument of Hebrews by tracing these themes, and that's what we want to do this morning, is to try to trace the theme of the Word of God through chapters 1 through 5, and then when we come to our our passage in verses 11 through 16, you'll notice those two verses that talk about the Word of God being living and active and powerful and able to divide and whatever. Generally speaking, when I've heard those verses expounded, they've been expounded independently of the context. And, And so what I want to try to focus on this morning is, what do these verses mean in context, uh, in, the, in the flow of the argument of the uh, book of Hebrews. So let's look at chapter 1. Pat read uh, those verses in, in verses uh, 1 through 4 of chapter 1, where the writer says, God has spoken in days gone by, various times and occasions, through or by his prophets. And then he says, he now has spoken finally and fully by his son. And then I call this this whole section, look who's talking, look who's speaking. Because I have to tell you, it really does matter, does it not? Who is talking as to how much attention you pay? It's one of the things that irritates our wives. If we're not paying attention, it says to us that they're not very important. (laughs) And if we are paying attention to somebody, it says it is important. So the author is going to show us how important the one who is speaking is. And so he, in verses 2b through uh, into verse 4, describes the Son with seven descriptions. It talks about him as deity. It talks about him representing the Father 
and, and, and His glory. It talks about Him as the creator and the sustainer of the universe. I'd say those are pretty good credentials for paying attention. And then you find in, those last, in the later verses in chapter 1, verses 5 through 14, you have a number of Old Testament citations, uh, seven quotations that fit with the seven statements that have been made in verses 2 through 4. Now you have seven Old Testament citations which buttress this argument about who our Lord Jesus is. And those, I believe, are critically important because they show us the unity of Scripture. Do they not? It's not the Old Testament versus the New, as though they're in opposition, but those Old Testament texts spoke of the one who was to come and of the fulfillment of those texts in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the unity of Scripture is, I think, clear. In chapter 2... You then get the, in those first four verses, you get the, the, the play out. If you, pl- uh, you think about who is speaking, and, and he is the living God, creator and sustainer of the universe, then the, the outcome, the exhortation in 2, 1 through 4 is pretty logical. We should pay more careful attention to what he says. It's probably more careful than what we have been doing. No doubt that's true for all of us. We should pay better attention to God's Word than we have. It may also be, I'm not sure, but it may also be that there was a sort of a priority level on the part of Jewish readers where because of their attachment to Moses and attachment to the old ways, it may be that they saw the New Testament as secondary reading and the New, the, the New Testament is secondary, the Old Testament is primary. But it seems to me you have to turn that around. Now, I know there's a philosophical argument going on in seminaries, uh, and, and, and it goes like this. Do you either look forward, and, and the New Testament, we, we cannot impose upon the Old Testament anything that we see in the New, or do we say we must interpret the Old Testament in light of the New? I'm in favor of the latter myself. And that is, because the New Testament is primary, because the Old Testament is shadow and the New Testament is substance, then it seems to me that you have to say, we had better pay better attention. And as we read our Bibles, let's read our Old Testament in light of what the New Testament tells us about it and the way the New Testament uses it. But they're certainly definitely related. So we better listen up, verses 1 through 4. Now, when you come to verses 5 through 18 of chapter 2, it's talking about the, uh, the, the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, who was higher than the angels, who now, for a moment of time, in his incarnation, has become lower than the angels by taking on humanity, living and dwelling amongst men. What has he accomplished in his incarnation by becoming lower than the angels what has the son done and we have those various things he has been perfected in the sense of qualified and equipped for the ministry that he is that he is to accomplish the ministry of redemption you had to be human uh, in order to to uh, die in man's place human and divine of course And you had to be human in order to be a sensitive, merciful high priest. So our Lord was qualified for his ministry by what he did. He provides salvation and restoration 
Going back to Genesis chapter 1, man is not what he used to be. But through the work of Christ, man is restored, and if he is in Christ, he is restored and returned to his place of honor and power through Jesus' work. He includes us now in the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant because the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant come through his seed, singular, Genesis, uh, Galatians 3, it comes through his seed, then all who are in Christ are now the heirs of the promises of Abraham. His incarnation accomplished that for us. And that makes us a part of the divine family. So that is the superiority of our Lord Jesus Christ to the angels. Now we have the superiority of our Lord Jesus to Moses beginning in chapter 3. I say beginning in chapter 3. That's not really totally accurate. If you look at all the things that are described of our Lord in chapter 1, if you look at all the things our Lord did in chapter 2, Moses couldn't match that description. He couldn't match up to that at all. So it's not really some new revelation that Christ would be greater than Moses, but he makes the point of it in verses 1 through 6. Moses was a part of the house. Our Lord Jesus is the builder of the house. Moses was the one who was faithful in the house. Our Lord Jesus is faithful over the house. Moses was faithful as a servant. The Lord Jesus was faithful as a son. The superiority of our Lord Jesus Christ to Moses. And therefore, he talks about Israel's... uh, He moves on to talk about Israel's failure in the wilderness in verses uh, 7 and following. But in 7 through 11, he cites Psalm 95. An example of failure. Under Moses' leadership, under the revelation God gave to the people through Moses... The people did not enter into the land. They did not enter into the blessings that were promised to them because of unbelief and disobedience. And it seems to me you have to take from that the exhortation, the warning, it could happen to you. There is very real danger there. If there was for that generation with all that they heard and saw, then surely there is a danger that needs to be recognized and acknowledged and responded to by believers. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Last week we talked about that rest being a rest which is still available. It wasn't just the rest of entering into the land because the writer in Psalm 95 speaks of the rest as still available and he's in the land. So the rest is still available to us, and that rest is a Sabbath rest, a rest from works, a rest in Christ. I think ultimately a salvation rest and a future rest that will be, uh, let's say, the millennial and eternal rest into which we enter. That brings us to the conclusion and the exhortation of verses uh, 11 through 16, our text for this morning. Strive to enter into rest, and then the importance of the Word of God in that process and the provision of a high priest. Now look with me. We're going to cheat for just a minute. Chapter 5. And think about the way in which he continues the subject of the Word of God and its importance in the life of the believer. He says that we have a better priest. Chapter 4, as it ends, talks to us about this priest who has endured endured humanity, endured the tests and the trials that we have, yet without fail. 
And now he's going to expand this whole discussion of the high priestly ministry of our Lord and how vastly superior he is as a high priest to any other high priest uh, from the Aaronic order that we see in the Old Testament. And then he says, when he starts talking about Melchizedek, he says, you know, the problem is I see those glassy eyes. Every time I bring up Melchizedek, you look at me with those blank looks, you know, like, what? Uh, What is this about? And he says, I'd like to talk to you more about that, but you just don't seem to get it. Remember, he says on this topic, verse 11, we have much to say, and it is difficult to explain since you've become sluggish in hearing. For though you should, in fact, be teachers by this time, you need someone to teach you the beginning elements of God's utterances. You have gone back to needing milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced in the message of righteousness because he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature whose perceptions are trained by practice to discern both good and evil. They are dull when it comes to understanding Scripture. And they are dull, he says, because they are short on application. The way in which the scriptures become clear is by believing them in faith and by doing them in obedience. He says, you guys are still dull. He, though, unlike Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, doesn't give up. He just plows on and says, you guys better listen because I'm bringing you along with me on this anyway. But remember, 1 Corinthians 3 says essentially the same thing. I would like to talk to you as spiritual folks, but I have to talk to you like babies because you just haven't grown. So the conclusion to all this is God's Word has a paramount place in the life of the believer. So let's look now at our text specifically and see how its teaching on the Word fits into this overall context of the word in the development of the argument of Hebrews. And I'll give you a preview of verses 11 through 16. You've got three exhortations, right? Let us, kind of, kind of clear, three instances of let us, which is an exhortation for us to do something in particular. Let us be diligent to enter that rest, verse 11. Let us hold fast to our confession, verse 14. Let us confidently approach the throne of grace, verse 16. Three exhortations. Verses 12 and 13 are buttressing the exhortation that are, that's found in verse 11. Let us be diligent to enter that rest. And then he immediately goes to the word of God. And it's connected by the word for. So it tells us it's a supporting statement that uh, buttresses his argument. And the exhortation then, exhortation one comes in verse 11, strive to enter God's rest. Now that comes out of Genesis 2. There is a sense in which when one enters into rest, they cease from their labors. That is, they cease from their works, works righteousness, anything that they may do to earn or merit God's favor. You set that aside. It isn't going to work. But he also says from Genesis chapter 2, that God rested after creation. He made in the six days, he created all of the, the earth, and then he rested. So the point is, 
we are not to climb in our hammocks and wait. We are to fulfill the task that he has given us to do. There are things for us to do, and we are to do those, not as though they earn us God's rest, but they are the things that must be done before one can rest. I, I used to work in the hay when I was a young uh, guy, and and uh, we'd go out, and the bales were the kind that in those days they weren't ha- handled by tractors and all those nice big round bales and whatever. They were the kind you picked up and stacked and put in the barn. And there was, a, there was an interesting feeling. When you finished with that last bale, then you could relax. But you really pressed hard. Until you got that work done, you pressed hard. When my folks had this little old resort and these old wood boats, uh, when we got ready for fishing season, uh, there were 37 of those wood boats we had to scrub out. But, you know, every year, and it was cold, the water was cold. Every year when we finished those boats, we always jumped in the lake and swam. It was sort of this way, just celebrating. We got out quick, but we swam. It was our rest because our work was done. That's the kind of uh, rest that he's talking about. The consequences of failure are great, so that no one may fall. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it's talking in the context of Israel's wanderings in the wilderness. It says, take heed lest ye, if you think you stand, lest you fall. So there is the danger of falling out of overconfidence and not having that fear of the dangers that lie ahead. And so he says, Israel's failure reminds us of the danger of failing, that it's, it's real and it's great. I was thinking about uh, this week uh, and the, uh, the uh, hurricane that came in and the people that chose not to leave. Basically, they minimized the danger, did they not? Now, I realized they'd probably been through some other threats and they hadn't come about, but essentially what they said is it's probably not going to happen or if it does, it's not going to be that bad. It really doesn't do you well to minimize the danger of falling as it's described in Hebrews. We ought to take that danger very seriously. Now look at verses 12 and 13 then as they fit into this. This is really based upon what we've, what we've seen already. But the scriptures, the word of God, is a revelation from God. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The scriptures are also a revelation of God. That is, the scriptures tell us about him. Moses said, show me your ways. And God says in Psalm 95, they didn't know my ways. Why didn't they know God's ways? Because they didn't know God's word. God's word tells us God's character. It tells us his ways. And so when you look in verses 2 through 4 of of chapter 1, it's describing him. When you look at the remaining verses, 5 through 14, it's describing God the Son. So the word of God tells us about God just as it is a word from God. It sets forth salvation. Chapter 2. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? The word of God is, chapter 4, verse 2, good news. It's a word of salvation, and we need, therefore, desperately to hear it. It is the basis for and the test of our faith and obedience. The word of God gives us confidence. When God says, I will bring you into the land... Do not fear. I'll give these enemies into your hand. Yes, there are giants in the land. I'll drive them out. 
God's Word is the basis for our faith, but it's also a test of our faith, whether or not we obey or disobey, whether we believe or disbelieve. It warns and exhorts us to the example of the Israelites. That's what Psalm 95 does. That's what the writer to the Hebrews does by hitchhiking, as it were, along with Psalm 95 and its warnings and exhortations. It assures us that there is still a rest that is a future rest that is available for us, and it is that rest for which we are to strive to enter. And then the big point of verses 12 and 13 which is sort of the capstone, it also is that which searches our hearts and exposes our sin. The, uh, this last uh, week or so, I, I, oh, I've been having for years problems with my neck, and so finally my doctor says, all right, let's take a good look at it, and I had an MRI, and you've probably been there. Some people really go berserk. I, I almost had a nap inside that thing. But the bottom line is that it allows you to see things you can't see from the surface. Does it not? It sees beneath the level of the skin, and it sees, as it were, the cartilage and, and all of the elements that are involved so that you can, you can see what you need to do. The Word of God is like an MRI. It exposes us. It is like a surgeon's knife that lays us open so that the stuff inside can be assessed. So when he speaks of the Word of God, he speaks of both the Old Testament and the New. Not just, not just the New Testament, but the Word of God in total is living and active. That is, it is not passive. When you watch some of the commercials on television, you know, for things that clean your bathtub or, or, or scrub your car, you get the feeling that they're trying to give you the impression that it's living and active. You just set the bottle on your car and watch. I mean, isn't that the impression you get? You, wherever it is, you just put it out there and it just goes baloney. You know, it's like a scrub brush, folks. It doesn't clean anything unless somebody's working it to death. Or should I say, it's working you to death. But that's not the way the Word of God is. The Word of God is itself alive. It is self-energizing, self-activating. All it has to do is just be turned loose, and it does the work. The Spirit of God, working through the Word of God, convicts people of their sin, exposes their sin. It regenerates people so that they come to faith and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is living and it is active. It works. It judges our hearts. It strips away, may I say, the fig leaves that are seeking to cover our sin. Doesn't it kind of remind you of, of, of Genesis chapter 3? Here are Adam and Eve now in their sinful state, and they're putting those fig leaves on. And, you know, I've always thought maybe they just sort of had bikini fig leaves. I don't think so. I think they probably, <laughs> probably covered everything in sight if they could because they hid themselves. Here they are now exposed to the eyes of God and aware of it because of their sin. And it's like, ah, oh, just I have to hide this. It exposes those things that are our sin. It divides and it distinguishes, isolating our motives and our thoughts. One of the things that was interesting, I was reminded one of the words that is used for wisdom in, in Proverbs chapter 1. And it's a word that is based upon a, a word that basically means between. 
distinguish between. Wisdom is the ability to make distinctions between good and better, better and best, good and evil, so that when you think about living out your life, there is a need for us to be able to distinguish, to make subtle distinctions. And when it comes to our lives, and you think about the murky mess in the, in the human heart of man, there is a desperate need for some skillful, surgical, spiritual knife that divides those things and makes them clear and identifies them so that we, so that God can work uh, in our lives in those areas. It reveals our standing in God's sight in the sense that it tells us what we're going to have to give account for. Isn't that right? The text is saying that we're going to stand before God. The Word of God is like a, uh, a preliminary, a, a trial test. And what it says is, I'm going to expose in you those things which when you stand before God, He's going to ask you about. And you're going to have to give account. So what it is, is it enables us to see those things and to have them dealt with because those are the things about which God is concerned in terms of our lives. And all of this, it seems to me, explains the psalmists and, and our psalmist, I mean Psalm 95, the author, and our author's use, prolific use of Scripture. Why in, in chapter 1? Why do you have so much Scripture? Why is Hebrews a book that probably quotes Old Testament Scripture and alludes to Old Testament Scripture more than any other book? The reason is because the Scriptures are alive and powerful and they show us where we are. And in the context of, of, of uh, chapter 4, the Scriptures here are not written to make us feel good about ourselves. Got it? This is not the power of positive thinking. We're not turning this into a glass cathedral this morning because the Scriptures are not there for me to say, Oh, how good I feel about me. Oh, how much human potential there is in me. The Scriptures are there to show us that the human heart is deceptive and wicked above all things. The, the, the Scriptures are there to say to me, Woe is me for the magnitude of my sin. That's what we were talking about in the worship time. Now, there is good news in the Scripture, and we're going to see that in just a minute, our high priest. But what I'm saying is, we feel good about him because he is the one who is the solution to what the Scriptures expose as wretched and kneeling, needing a great uh, attention in our lives. So, we might conclude by saying, the Scriptures thus reveal God to us. They set forth the goal of salvation. You might say salvation being rest. They tell us what God commands us to do. They exhort us to enter into that rest. They warn us of the dangers that are there based upon the sins of others in the past as well as the sin within us. It exposes our sin and, here's the good part we've been waiting for, it tells us of the source of grace and help, our Lord Jesus Christ. So now we come to the second exhortation. Hold fast to our confession because we have a great high priest. Verse 14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us 
hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest incapable of sympathizing with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. When the scriptures expose us for what we are, and it's not a pretty picture, when the scriptures reveal the sin and the depth of the problem within our heart, Hebrews comes along and the gospel comes along and says, the good news is he's the one who through his incarnation has come and take, taken on our humanity. As we talked about this morning in our worship time, he has taken our sins upon himself, if we've trusted in him, and therefore he restores us to what we were originally, potentially at least, in uh, chapter 1 at creation. So the good news is we have a great high priest. Notice he is a high priest who has passed through the heavens. I would say that distinguishes one priest from everybody else, does it not? And it reminds us of what Hebrews has already said. When he made atonement for our sins, he was raised from the dead and he ascended up to the Father and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is by the throne of, on the throne of God next to the Father. So we are talking about a very unique high priest who has died and who has raised, been raised from the dead and now sits at the right hand of the Father. He, because he took on humanity, he experienced our sins yet without failure. And so he is able to sympathize with us because of that fact. Exhortation 3. We ought to confidently approach the throne of grace to receive mercy and grace whenever we need help. And after you look at verses 12 through 13, that's all the time, is it not? That's all the time. We desperately need help all the time. Whenever we come to the scriptures, it ought to expose in us that which is in desperate need of grace. It doesn't say that it exposes sin in our lives so that we know how to work harder. It says that it exposes sin in our lives so that we will flee to the priest who made atonement for our sins and who, as a priest, intercedes for us and brings to us mercy and grace. Look at this. We approach the throne, the throne of grace. I was thinking back uh, in the book of Esther. Do you remember when Esther was, uh, was told by her uncle that she needed to go and make an appeal to the king? Now, I suspect there are a lot of reasons why people didn't have ready access uh, to the king, but I would say one of them would be security, wouldn't you? What you didn't do is allow a whole bunch of people to be around the king where you can't control that. You let people in in a very limited way because you're trying to protect him. God doesn't need protection. And he has broken down that barrier. As, he, as the veil was torn, we now have access to him. But think of this. I mean, how many of us are ever going to have the opportunity to go to the White House and have a meeting with the president? Nobody here that I know of. And yet, what this text tells us is the God of all the universe is sitting on his throne And he wants us not just to approach. He wants us to approach boldly. We don't have to approach like Esther did saying, well, if I don't have permission to come, he may kill me. We know that when we come to that throne, it is the throne of grace. And therefore, we find mercy and help. 
And that's why he says to us, if that's the case and the scriptures point out your sin and history has shown us sin in other people, then we need to come to him. We need to cling to him. That's what God's word does. It reveals God to us. It reveals us as we stand before God. It shows us we're sinners and we need help. And it drives us to the cross. Now, let me say a few things by way of conclusion. When you look at an author's conclusion, it tells you where he's been going all along. That's true except for Alfred Hitchcock. Alfred Hitchcock has this little twist where he likes to make his conclusion something where you, you never would have known where he was going until you got there. It's not really the way God is, and it's not really the way the scriptures are. When you look at the author's conclusion, it tells you what his argument has been all along. Now, I've played that tune a, a lot when it comes to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 because everybody wants to start making exceptions based on 1 Corinthians 11 rather than seeing what the conclusion is. The conclusion tells you where he's going. Same thing is true in 1 Corinthians 10 as it relates to eating meats offered to idols in, verse, in chapters 8 through 10. You don't start your conclusions in chapter 8. That's the beginning. You, you look at the author's argument in terms of where he's going. So where is he taking us? He's taking us to look uh, and strive for rest, to understand that the Scriptures expose our sin and we need to be in the Scriptures paying more careful heed to them. We have a great high priest who has made atonement for our sins and intercedes for weak people who gives grace in time of need. So we ought to draw near to him and hold fast to our confession. I would say this. This is really a word that applies to both believers and unbelievers, doesn't it? In terms of unbelievers, the word of God is what exposes their sin. And as they see that sin, our job in presenting the gospel is to say to them, God in his mercy and grace has provided a solution. It's come, it comes in the person of our Lord Jesus. In him you may have grace and mercy and forgiveness and cleansing and help. <laughs> and it's true for believers as well. We need to turn to him. We need to be in his word. We need to see the sin in our lives and we need to turn to the great high priest because he is the one the one alone who has the help. Well, I already said this, but nowhere in Scripture are we, are we told that the Scriptures are, are there for us to feel good about us. They're just not. And, and, and just in, in the last couple of days, I've read things where people basically say, well, I feel good about myself, or I feel good about this, therefore I know it's right. Don't trust that. Don't trust that. The Scripture is there to tell us whether it's right or not, and we need to believe God's word and act upon it. So the importance of the word of God, pay closer attention to it. It is the substance, the, the, the basis on which we come to know God, we come to know ourselves, and we can live out our lives in a way that brings us to rest. And all of that leads me to this last point. If the word of God is that important, you better believe it'll be attacked. Is that not true? If the word of God is that important in the life of the believer, you better expect it's going to be under attack. It's very clear in our postmodern world, it's much more boldly and brazenly done where we see people basically saying, I don't believe there is absolute truth. The tragedy is that many people who profess to be Christians aren't sure that there's absolute truth either. 
I got to tell you, folks, that's what this is about. This word, thy word, is truth, Jesus said. It is the word of God that is the pathway that shows us the, the way to salvation and sanctification. I am the way, the truth, and the life, our Lord Jesus said. There is absolute truth. But what's happening that disturbs me most is the departure from the truth in Christian circles in several ways. In our seminaries, it happens by scholasticism. And it happens sort of in a subtle way. But, but for example, you have to look at a text and you see there's a variant between this particular text, the word that's used in this text. And so pretty soon you find yourself saying, well, the, the, the scriptures really, it's this, not that. And you're determining now what is scripture. And, and, and what happens then is when you come to texts which are difficult, not because of textual issues, but because of moral issues or obedience issues, then all of a sudden you start saying, you know, if we really studied this carefully, we would come to this conclusion. And the problem is that we be, put ourselves over the scriptures as opposed to under them. It's a subtle change, but it's a dangerous change indeed. Because now I'm the gateway. I'm the determiner of what's true and not true. I'm sure all of you have read uh, in the papers in the last couple of weeks that one of the, the Bible churches in the Dallas Metroplex, after 18 months of study, concluded that what the Bible clearly and dogmatically says about the role of women in the church, it doesn't really say at all. When you come right down to it, that's what it says. It really doesn't mean that. Now, it took 18 months, 18 months, to come to that conclusion as opposed to 18 seconds to read the text and say, that's what it says, that's what's true, and I believe it. And there's a chain. What bothers me is that it starts in ways that some people may be happy to let happen. But now what's happening is that same line of argument happens, and you see, and I've seen this in the last couple of weeks too, People who say, well, I finally decided the important thing for me is to be authentic. That's the most important thing. And I've been living a lie. I'm really gay, and so I have to tell you that. I'm going to stay in the church, but I'm not going to argue about Scripture. And I expect believers to embrace me and love me, but that's the way I am. And I've come to accept myself just the way God made me. Don't blame me. God didn't make me this way to send me to hell. For my sin. That's what people are saying these days. It's because we have failed to embrace the Word of God as the truth, as the absolute truth, that places its judgment on us rather than our placing our judgment upon it. It exposes our sin. We don't expose its flaws. It exposes ours. And that turns us to a merciful high priest who is the solution for our sin. That's what it's all about, the Word of God. Doesn't that help you in a way, it helps me at least, to see how the the book of Hebrews is coming along, how vital the Word of God is. No wonder we keep finding it chapter after chapter because that Word of God is what reveals God to us and it reveals us and our need for God so that we can trust and obey. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for for the book of Hebrews. Thank you for your entire word. It doesn't always tell us what we want to hear. It doesn't always tell us 
to do what we would want in our flesh to do, but it does tell us what's right. It does tell us what's true, and it does point us to Jesus. Father, may that be true every day in our lives. May we be in your word. May it work powerfully in our lives, and when it exposes our sin, help us to flee to Jesus, our merciful, merciful high priest, and to his throne, throne of grace and mercy. If there's anyone here this morning apart from a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, I pray that you would expose their sin, draw them to him. Father, if there's any amongst us who have somehow played fast and loose with your word and been casual about it and we're drifting away, help us to see the dangers that lie ahead and to turn back to the Lord Jesus and to his word. In his name we pray. Amen.